I want you to imagine for a moment being a follower or a disciple of Jesus during the last 24 hours before he went to the cross. That was a, a period, a moment, where it would have felt that everything was unraveling. Uh, some of the disciples, of course, had followed Jesus for about three years. They'd invested a lot of time and energy in listening to Jesus, being convinced by Jesus, believing that his ministry, his focus, his teaching was correct. They became convinced that he was the Messiah. And then to learn and discover that one of your group sold him out, and then to watch him get arrested, and then convicted, and then beaten, and then placed upon a cross, it would have felt like the most chaotic moment of your entire life, completely out of control. How many of you have ever felt totally out of control? <laughs> I mean, they felt that way because they were. They were out of control. They had no ability to control that environment. And the reason I'm telling that story or asking you to, to imagine that is because in that moment, of course, we understand in hindsight that God was working his deepest purpose and his deepest will in that moment. They felt that God's plans and God's purposes were unraveling, but we could say it like this, God's purposes and God's plan were actually being unveiled at that moment. God was unfolding his purpose. He was unfolding his plan with all of that chaos because Jesus Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. In fact, it, it, what that means is that in God's mind and perspective, this had to come to pass. This was God's purpose and God's desire. That might be actually a word for some of you here today as you think about things even in your own life where it feels that Everything is unraveling. Everything is chaotic. It might be the moment that God is actually working or able to work. You could say it at least like this. He is able to work in those moments, his deepest purpose in your life. And the reason I'm sharing that today is because in the passage in front of us, God is going to sovereignly unfold his purpose in spite of everyone in the chapter. I mean, as I studied it this week and was just kind of pouring over each verse and each character and each episode, you know, I, I, I kind of came to the conclusion, every single human being in this passage we're about to read is a, at least a little bit messed up. I mean, Abner's messed up, Joab is messed up, Ishbosheth, Saul's son is messed up, and even David is messed up. But as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, the only character in this chapter that isn't messed up is God. You know, and, and he's able to, in spite of all of their flaws, he's able to unfold his will. That is part of the definition of, of God's sovereignty, that he's able to navigate the course of human history and affairs to bring about his purposes and his desire. That might actually help some of you as you even think about how to look at the world, how to, how to look and how to process what you're seeing in even the world today. The, the reality is in the most chaotic of times, God could be working. God could be moving. God is unfolding his purpose and his plan for human history. 
And so today we're going to see that even though Saul's house attempted to thwart David's rise, nothing could prevent it. For God and his plans are unstoppable. And we'll see this in four different ways in this passage. Number one, before we read verse one through five together, number one is that God uses flawed people for his glory. I think you'll understand what I mean by that as we read this little passage. So let's read verse one through verse five. It says, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. We actually use this verse as our theme for last week and this week. David's house is increasing. Saul's house is decreasing. Great picture, by the way, of the battle in the Christian between the spirit and the flesh. We want the spirit to increase, amen, and we want the flesh to decrease uh, in our lives. Now, in verse 2, it says, and sons were born to David at Hebron. Remember, God told him to move to Hebron, so he established his throne there in Hebron at first. He's not yet in Jerusalem like he will be in the future. And it says that sons were born to him there. His firstborn was Amnon, and his mother was Ahinoam of Jezreel. And his second, Chiliab, of a different woman, Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithraim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Now it's important in the course of, I know, I know that's not like the most electrifying uh, paragraph right there. You know, you're like, well, I have underlines and highlights already in this section. I've gotten so much off, off of those few verses uh, in my life so many times. Uh, but the reality is when you're looking at the life of David, uh, David is going to be the one that God makes a promise to in chapter 7 that of his offspring will come the Messiah. So it's very important to track David's family, to know who his offspring are, who his sons are. But of course, as you read through it, it kind of makes us feel a little bit awkward, doesn't it? You know, there's a lot of things we like about David. We like that he wrote all these songs for the Lord. We like that he was a musician. We like that he was brave in the face of danger. We like that he battled against Goliath. But usually on our list of things we like about David, there isn't this thing like, I like that he had six wives. Uh, that's usually not the thing that we're excited about in David's life. But that's what we see here in this passage. In Hebron, there were six women that he was uh, at least to some degree romantically connected with. And later in the chapter, we're going to see uh, the, the memory of, he's going to actually be reconnected to his first wife, so the seventh in this chapter, a woman named Michael, who was Saul's uh, daughter. Uh, so uh, right away, we're seeing an imperfection, a flaw in David. In fact, uh, not only was David being disobedient to God, God's revealed will as discovered throughout the rest of the Bible, especially in places like Genesis chapter 2, where God took one man and one woman and placed them together for all of life, but God had also made a specific prohibition for the kings of Israel before there ever even were kings in Israel. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, of which David would have read and studied, it says, and the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Now, fortunately, David's heart did not turn away in the sense that he did not go to worship the false gods of 
foreign women like his son Solomon unfortunately would do years later. But David had sinned in that he had acquired multiple, many wives uh, for himself. But in this, what we're seeing is that God is still going to use his life because God uses flawed human beings. He uses flawed people. And I think part of the reason why it's good for me to mention that to you this morning is because it is tempting as you read through David's life, as you see some of the blessings that were poured out upon his life, it is easy when asking the question, why? Why was he so blessed? Why did God move in such beautiful ways in his life? Why did God do such amazing things for David, one of the answers that we might be tempted to give is to say, because David was incredible, because David was only godly, because David was flawless in character and flawless in speech. And so, of course, God used a man like that because those are the kind of people that God blesses. But what we're seeing here is that God had made a decision to bless David's life. And though there were great things about his character, great blessings that came into his life because he walked with the Lord, what we're seeing in the big scheme of things is that God blessed David because he chose to bless David's life. That's an important thing for us to think about lest we come to a place in our own lives of saying, how can I get the blessing of God? Well, the way that I can do it is by being super good. And if I'm super good, then God owes me And if things aren't going great in my life, then perhaps the flaw is somewhere inside of me. Now listen, I'm all for self-inspection, asking the Lord, is there a sin in my life? Is there something that is amiss? But to think to yourself that it's through your perfection that you can bring down the blessing of God, that's an erroneous concept. It's through the the perfection of Jesus Christ that you can bring down the blessing of God. It's through the righteousness of another that we stand in the presence of the Lord. And so God uses flawed people. He uses flawed people, by the way, because that's all he has to work with. It's not like he looks around and he's like, well, you know, there's these perfect people over there, but they're just too good to be used with. No, he looks around. All he has are flawed people. I love the passage in the book of Acts when the gospel, the the story of Acts is the story of about 30 years of the church's early history where the gospel was spreading from just Israel and Israel. Hebrews, the Jewish people, into the Gentile world and all throughout the known world at the time. And there came a moment in Acts chapter 10 where about 10 years after Jesus died, uh, the gospel needed to get out of just Jewish uh, people and into the Gentile world. And God wanted to use Peter to get that job done. And, and the, the man that God wanted to send Peter to was a guy named Cornelius. He was a Gentile centurion. So he was a military man and he had some kind of, of affinity for the God of Israel. And so he would have these times of prayer. He probably wasn't a full convert to Judaism, but he would pray. He would pray to the God of Israel. And one day, while in prayer, an angel appeared to Cornelius. But instead of saying to Cornelius, hey, Cornelius, there is a gospel. Jesus came. He died on the cross for the sin of the world, including you. And if you believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Instead of saying that, the angel said to Cornelius, send messengers down to Joppa and ask for a man named Peter. 
You see, God could use perfect angels if he desired, but that is not the desire of God. He wanted to use an imperfect man like Peter to, com- to communicate the perfect gospel of God's grace. Now, I mentioned last week, I gave a little teaser and I said, I'm going to mention David's polygamy and talk about that a little bit next week. So give me five minutes now to talk about this in David's life, just some of the intricacies of it. And the reason I think it's good to do this is because to listen to some people talk about the Bible, you come to the conclusion that every single marriage you read about in the Bible was a polygamous marriage. Or some might describe every marriage in the Old Testament as a polygamous marriage. But what you need to understand is that the New Testament and also the Old Testament continually hold out the ideal of a a man and a woman coming together covenanting for their entire lives to be married and to commit committed to one another. In fact, the first time you see that is in Genesis chapter 2. The first polygamy in the polygamous marriage in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, a man named Lamech. And then you have David here. His son Solomon was guilty of one of the more egregious forms of uh, polygamy. And then there are a few others, but some of them are not even classic polygamy, like Abraham. Some people say Abraham was a polygamist. Well, the reality is Abraham was married to one woman. He was married to Sarah. And he did sin when he gave into the cultural custom of the day in taking his wife's servant, impregnating her, and having a child intending to credit that child to his wife, Sarah. But he was not a polygamist. Then Jacob, who came a couple of generations after uh, Abraham, Jacob, whose name was turned to Israel, so he had 12 sons who became the leaders uh, or the, the namesakes of the tribes of Israel years later. Jacob, when he got married, he actually did become a polygamist. But the, the thing was, he didn't want to. He wanted to marry one woman, a woman named Rachel, but his father-in-law Laban deceived him because of the way the the wedding ceremony was organized in that era. Uh, The brides were all covered up and everything. And Laban gave Rachel's older sister, Leah, to Jacob. And so he eventually married both of them and then used their servants to have children as well. These aren't good things. They're not godly things. It's just what happened. And the Bible records it. But even then, it wasn't classic polygamy. You could probably even say that David's right here wasn't classic polygamy because he's a king. And the custom of the day, again, not right, it's still a sin, but the custom of kings in that day was to multiply wives, specifically foreign wives, so that during their lifetime they would have peace with the foreign power that they had just married into. And there, as you read through the list there of David's wives, some of that seems uh, to be the case. But all that to say, David was still in sin here at this moment in his life. But I just wanted to set that out there. The biblical norm, even in the Old Testament, was covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. Unlike some religions that will hold out an eternal ideal, like someday you're going to enter into an eternity where there will be polygamy, and usually what we mean by that is, or what they mean by that is polygyny, which is polygamy for a man, but not as not, not for a woman, uh, that ideal is not the Christian ideal. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 that in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, 
but are like angels in heaven. So that's probably more about polygamy than you ever wanted to know, but there it is. I'm just trying to point out here that God used a flawed man for his glory, just like he can use flawed humans today. I've even seen the Lord use flawed methodologies today. Oh, the church should be this and the church. There's a lot of things the church should be, but God just still keeps on working through it. He can use flawed denominations. I've even seen the Lord use flawed doctrines ultimately for his purposes in a person's life. So the Lord, he can use us in our shortcomings. I, I, I sometimes crack up at what I do with my life uh, because I'm a classic introvert. Uh, sometimes people will tell me I'm an introvert and I'll ask them a few questions. I'll be like, you're not an introvert. You like, you, you like some things about you know, being alone or whatever. But if someone were to say to me like, Nate, we're sorry, but the next four days you're going to be totally by yourself without any human contact. I'd be like, oh, wow, that's exciting. Like all the things I'm going to do and think about and write about and read. And I mean, it's just going to be incredible. I do get my batteries recharged by being alone. Sometimes for long periods of time. Some people will ask me sometimes, like, how could you go run for like three hours in the wilderness? I'm like, it's the best thing ever, you know? So it cracks me up that the Lord has asked me to do something that is not only public from, from a platform, but is also public in just the sense of like getting to know people, hanging out with people, spending time with people. And the Lord challenged me years ago. And, you know, really challenged me through a few different people and a th few different circumstances to say, don't let that be your identity. That's not who you are. You're in Christ. You're a pastor. And I'm asking you to love people, be with people, stuff like that. And so now I've found that I'm actually a little bit of an extrovert because I think the Holy Spirit has worked in my heart and worked in my life. But I just think it's funny that the Lord lets us do things that we just have to come up against our own inadequacies and our own inability. All right, now in verse six, let's read on in this story. It says, well, there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. We read last week that Abner had set up Ishbosheth, Saul's son, as the king of Israel. But here we discover that Abner is actually trying to take the leadership from Ishbosheth. He's making himself strong. Now Saul, verse 7, had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone in? to my father's concubine. It's a way of saying, why have you had a romantic relationship with her? Then Abner, verse 8, was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. So does that, does that read like a denial to you? I don't think so. He, he's not denying it, but he gets very angry. He says, God, verse 9, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba, that's the north to the south. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Now, here's what happens in this 
uh, episode in the story. You know, Ishbosheth sees that Abner is starting to elevate himself. He's starting to get a stranglehold on the kingdom, and he begins fearing Ishbosheth. He sees there's a little rivalry there developing. He, he might be weak, Ishbosheth, but he's not dumb. He realizes what's happening here. And so he finally, after hearing this rumor that Abner had done this thing and gone into Saul's concubine, which was kind of like a, an ancient way to consolidate, consolidate power, he hears about that and he confronts Abner. Abner loses it in response. He says, look, you know, I have been kind to your father. I've been kind to his brothers. I've been kind to his friends and you, his son, I have not turned you over to David. I've protected you. But then he announces this thing. He says, and God do so to me and more also, if I do not transfer the kingdom of Israel from you to David. In other words, what you have here is this man, Abner, who for seven and a half years has been bent in a certain direction. In a moment, he is turned in another direction. For seven and a half years, he has apparently even known that what God wanted was for David to be king, but he pursues Ishbosheth being king. And in a moment of confrontation, his heart is turned and he makes a commitment to transfer the kingdom of Israel into David's hand. The second thing I wanted you to see here is not only, number one, that God uses flawed people for his glory, but I wanted you to see, number two, that God can turn evil plans for good. You see, Abner's own plan was in this moment turned on its head, and God would use Abner for his ultimate purpose of making David the king of Israel. As many of you might even be thinking of the classic cross-reference at this point of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I'll read it to you. And we know, it says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that a beautiful concept? That we know, we believe, that God works all things together for good for, and he uses a couple of phrases that basically mean his people, his followers. It's those who have believed in him, and as a result, we've loved him because of what he's, he has done for us. That we believe that God is, is working all things in our lives together for his good purpose in our life. Now, let me explain this for a moment, because I realize that the second I read a verse like that or talk about a verse like that, what, what do we all do? Don't we all start thinking about the stuff in our lives? Like, well, how are you using that? And, and how, how are you going to do that? Is this just going to be something that like on my deathbed, I see something that happened to me 60 years earlier and it's like, oh, okay, now I get it, you know, kind of thing. Is it like that? Well, let me, let me explain to you the context of that verse. You see, in Romans chapter 8, right before Paul wrote that beautiful phrase that we, many of us know and love, he announced that there are times that we try to pray but we don't know what to pray for. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that place where you're like, now I have a little time to pray and, and I'm going to pray and you just, and you're like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to pray for. And then I think more specifically, it's moments when there's a thing that you know you want to pray about, like maybe a crossroads in life, a big decision, you know, something like that. And you start to pray. And in that moment, you still say, but I don't know specifically what to pray for. 
Should I pray to go to the right? Should I pray to go to the left? I just don't know what thing I am to be praying for in that moment. And what what Paul announced there in Romans chapter 8 is, in that moment, it's like groaning for us. You know, we we just kind of get to this point where it's like, I don't know what to pray. So what Paul then announces in Romans 8 is that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that come from Him. In other words, the Spirit searches the mind of God, and He searches your heart, and He's going to the Father. The Father, the Spirit, and then in other passages we know the Son, they are in communion. God is within communion within Himself about you and about me. And the Father then, Paul goes on to say, searches our hearts as well. So what you have is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Godhead, the entirety of who God is, working together, thinking about, interceding, communing, talking about, thinking about your life and my life. And then that's when Paul says, and we know that God works all things together for good. So I think what's happening here is that God, as he works inside of you, as he thinks about you, as he intercedes for you, as he's communing over you, one of the questions is, how will I use the hard things, the bad things, the painful things for my ultimate purpose in this person's life? And what is the ultimate purpose that he's trying to produce? The ultimate purpose, right after Romans 8.28, is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what he's trying to do. That's the good that he's trying to draw out of our lives that we would become more and more like Jesus. And all throughout the Bible, we see this truth bearing out amongst God's people. That God takes the all things, like a pharmacist who brings all these different medicines together and creates a prescription, so is God able to take the all things of life for the good of his children. We've seen this as we've looked at Saul. Uh, and David. Saul was a negative, but who God used as a positive in developing David's character in life. You see it in Genesis when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. It's a terrible moment in his life, but God uses it to elevate him eventually to the number two position in Egypt for the saving of his family and the future flourishing of the people of Israel who would bring forth the Messiah. We see it in the New Testament with the church. Jesus told them to go into all the world and make disciples, but for the first, you know, six six or seven years, they really weren't going very many places. They just were kind of hanging out in Jerusalem. But persecution came, a very bad thing, but they spread as a result of that persecution, preaching the gospel. And what is the ultimate example of God using the hard or the ugly things in life for his ultimate good? Well, the ultimate example is the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? There you see the worst in humanity bringing out the best of God's plan and God's purpose. And here you have this man, Abner, who was determined to head in a certain direction. Yet the Lord had a completely different desire. God is able to turn evil plans for good. Maybe one like contemporary example of this being fleshed out in our own lives. I realize that not everybody is called to be married. Not everybody gets married. But for those who are called to it, those who have been married, I found that there's kind of this time somewhere between, let's say, year seven 
and year 14 or 15, right around, around there in this time, where this, this thing often happens in a marriage. Not every marriage, but in a lot of marriages. And I call it the O moment, where a married couple kind of looks at each other and they go, oh, that's what we're dealing with. This is where we're at. The things that were easy at first, where things were flowing and life was happening and things were trucking forward, that's no longer easy. And obviously, in that moment, we know what the enemy wants to do. But you see, the Lord is able to take that moment. I've seen him do this in the lives of believers who kind of woke up and realized, like, man, things aren't where we wanted them to be. They're not where we planned them to be. You know, way back then, on, way back when on our wedding day, when our friends were there and our families were there and we had that perfect, you know, cake out there and we're all, it just all these loving, I will feed you chocolate covered strawberries till the day we die. You know, it's as part of our vows. And I mean, I've heard vows like that, you know, and, and we're, we're like saying all those things. And then it's like, man, eight years later, 10 years later, like we're, hey, babe, we're the chocolate covered strawberries, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> And in that moment, we know what the enemy wants to do. But, but here's what the Spirit can do. The Spirit can turn in a couple's heart this thing that says, oh, now we've discovered this is actually going to take more work than we initially thought. We're going to have to actually work to serve one another, work to learn about each other, work to be changed, work to be transformed. What came easy at first, perhaps, is now going to have to be worked as we walk through this with the strength of the Lord. And I've seen God use what the enemy intended for evil to actually create and build something really strong and powerful between a married couple. And so that's what we see here. The Abner's, Abner's plan, seven and a half years of it, turned in a moment for good. Now let's read the next episode in verse 12. It says, And Abner, verse 12, sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you. So David says, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. We can have a covenant together, but there's, there's one thing that you have to do. So let's read what it is. He says, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now remember her, she was David's first wife. They were married in those early years after David had defeated Goliath. Uh, but since then, she'd been taken from David and David wants to be reunited with her. This is probably not a highly romantic kind of gesture. This might have more to do with, again, having a rightful claim to Saul's throne. I am Saul's son-in-law. And so uh, David wants to be reconnected with Michael. Then David, verse 14, sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. So he just can't give up mentioning that part. So there it is. You can go back and read that passage and listen to that study because I already talked about it. And Ishbosheth, verse 15, sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go, return, and he returned. Abner was a man of war. Paltiel was not going to mess with him, so he turns away. It's just a weird scene. And Abner then, verse 17, conferred, conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, 
For some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By my hand, or by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines, from the hand of all their enemies. Abner spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin, or the tribe of Benjamin, thought good to do. So all of Israel. But then the Benjamites, they were the hardest ones to turn because they were Saul's family. So he had to deal with both of them. When Abner, verse 20, came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So Abner follows through here in that episode. He follows through with what he told Ishbosheth he was going to do. I'm going to consolidate the kingdom and I'm going to give it to David. I'm going to transfer Israel, including the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe. I'm going to transfer them over to uh, King David. And he goes out and does it. David says, I'm down, but you have to return Michael to me. And so they do that. It's an odd part of the episode. Again, I think just some, you, you're seeing sin involved there and all of that. They're reunited, but it was the evidence that David needed, that Abner's heart was in the right place and really for him. And so Abner does what he said that he would do. But what I want you to notice is in verse 18. Would you read that with me again? It says that Abner said, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. All right, now what you're reading there is you're reading a man. This guy, for seven and a half years, has apparently known that the Lord promised that David would be king. For seven and a half years, he has known that God has predicted that David would be the one to deliver the Israelite from the Philistine people. He has known that, but let me ask you a question. Did Abner for seven and a half years act like he knew that God had said these things? No. He knew it, but he ran in the exact opposite direction of what he knew. The third thing I wanted to show you about the sovereignty of God, the unstoppable nature of God, is that God can bring people into line with his purpose. Here was this man, like Jonah, who was running directly from God's revealed will, and yet God brought him back. God submitted him to his purposes at the right time. Look, many of us understand this as part of our own testimony, part of our own story. Look, maybe there's a few of you here today that you were just cruising along in life and had never heard about Jesus, had never heard the gospel message, and somebody came into your life and they said, hey, I want to share the good news with you. I want to share what the Lord's done in my life. And they began to tell you about Jesus. They began to share the gospel with you and you heard it for the very first time and you just said out loud, I want to believe. I believe that. And you gave your life to the Lord. But for so many of us, the story does not go like that. For so many of us, we heard the truth. For so many of us, we came to the place of knowing the truth. 
recognizing there is a God. He's asking for my life. He sent his son to die on the cross for me, yet we still ran in the opposite direction for a season of time. I know this to be true in my own life. And eventually the Lord got us, many of us here in this room, to a place where we were brought in line with his purpose and with his desire for our lives. You see, God is sovereign. He can do that. And God is very persistent. He's very persistent. There's this thing, it's called persistence hunting. It happens in lots of nations, uh, even uh, some tribes uh, still today. And the idea of persistence hunting is that there are certain animals that are too powerful for, let's say, a tribe to be able to kill alone. And so what they'll do is some of these hunters, persistence, persistence hunters, they will train up themselves to be able to run, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles at a time without, you know, just without taking a break and just keep going and all of that. And what will happen is that an animal does not have that same kind of ability to sweat, to, uh, you know, take in enough oxygen, to keep running, to have the lungs pumping. It can run fast for a little period of time, but eventually the beast will tire and the tribe will succeed. They call that persistence hunting. I think about it all the time when I'm like running out in the hills or something. And I know that there's probably a mountain lion up there somewhere. And I think to myself for a second, but I am hunting you, you know, (laughs) it it calms my heart for like 10 seconds. And then, but you see the Lord, he's more persistent than you are. He's more persistent than that person that you're praying for is. I'm sure many of you in this room have had the delightful experience, although not delightful in the moment that you've gone through with it, gone through it, but the delightful experience of praying for someone for 10 or 20 or 30 years, and then seeing that person at some moment where you least expected it, turning their hearts, turning their lives to the Lord. It can get discouraging though. You get to the 10 year mark of praying for an individual. It can be discouraging. You feel like, man, things are just set in stone. What has come before is what will be and what will come again. But to trust the Lord, that he is more persistent, that he can last and he can endure even a hardened heart. So here we're seeing God bring Abner into line with his purpose. And God can do that with individuals, but he can also do that with leaders and nations and movements for his ultimate purpose. Okay, now we're going to read through the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 22, for the last point, that God demonstrates the beauty of holiness by contrasting it with the ugliness of sin. So I think you'll know what I mean as I read through this, verse 22. So it says, just then, just then, just imagine it, David sent Abner out. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. When Joab, verse 26, came out from David's presence, 
He sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah, but David did not know about it, so a secret meeting. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. You know, Joab thinks everything's peaceful. I'm at peace with David. We made a covenant. But there Joab struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And we saw last week that Abner had killed Asahel with the blunt edge of his spear, piercing him in the stomach, the same place that Abner struck Joab. Afterward, verse 28, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge, or who is leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. And we're like, dang, David. He's going gangsta on the whole thing. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, so now we know Abishai was there, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David, verse 31, said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, why should should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands, verse 34, were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people, verse 35, came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, that's his sister, are more severe than I. Talking about Joab and Asahel and Abishai. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. All right, now quickly. What happened here is that Joab takes matters into his own hands, kills Abner. David hears about it. He wants to make sure everybody knows this wasn't his idea. In ancient Israel, the idea of blood guilt was a big deal. And he wanted everybody to know that the blood of Joab should not be upon him. That's why he did this very public thing of saying, let the blood guilt be upon Joab and let it be evidenced in his family in this way for years to come. But then he has a funeral for for, uh, Abner. He uh, actually makes Joab attend the funeral. He forces Joab to mourn at the funeral, wear sackcloth and rend his garments. David writes a lamentation for Abner at the funeral. He's there with the coffin, and he's mourning for Abner. People came to him and said, David, you need to eat some food, man. You're not looking good. You're the king of Israel now. You should look better than this. And he refuses food and says, no, I'm not going to eat today. I'm fasting today for Abner. 
And then he publicly declares, man, these guys, the sons of Zariah, my nephews, they are more uh, wicked than I am. They, They are aggressive, zealous men. I can't handle them. They're too much for me. They're wearisome to me. And in all of this, notice the little phrase in verse 36. And all the people took notice, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. Here's what I want to leave you with. God demonstrated the holy and beautiful part of David by contrasting it with the ugliness of Joab's sin. You see, people knew that David, in his heart of hearts, had a, had a passion for God. They knew that. But it was in this moment that they really knew it. They watched this guy, they saw how he responded to Abner's death, and they realized this guy really did forgive Abner. He really was willing to let bygones be bygones. He really was willing to take this guy who had joined with Saul to try to kill him in the wilderness for so many years. He was willing to forgive him and release him. And he wanted to have nothing to do with this ugliness and atrocity. You see, sometimes... I think that the Lord will allow stuff into our lives that are an opportunity for the people in our lives to see the way a holy mind works. The way that a person whose heart is after God actually works. Because you can say it all day long, but when you have to go through it, when you have to endure it, when you have to experience it, it's a totally different thing. And so God here demonstrates the beauty of holiness by contrasting it with the ugliness of sin. All right, now looking at this whole chapter, I'm sure you're tempted to look at it and just say, man, what a mess this whole chapter. I mean, you got war, you got wives, plural, (laughs) you've got a concubine, you've got you know, the blood of Asahel, you got this curse, you got a grave and a funeral, you just got a mess. But you know who works in the midst of this mess? It's God. You see, that's the cross of Jesus. In the midst of humanity's ugliness, God is able to work and move. And so that is his sovereign grace and strength. And so I just want to lead you in a prayer to invite that into our lives, to have the Lord help us to take all the stuff and to use it for his glory. So Father, we do bow before you, and Lord, we ask that you, Lord, by your Spirit, would take the the ugliness of life and all the different things going on around us, and that, Lord, you would use them for your ultimate purposes and glory. Thank you for your sovereign hand. Thank you, Lord, for your great ability. And we, Lord, invite you that power to be manifest in our lives. Help us, Lord, to trust you. And God, when terrible things happen around us, help us to respond like David responded to Abner's death in a way that is so beautiful, so attractive, that it demonstrates to the people in our lives what a holy person lives and operates and thinks like. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.